3: Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast, where we bring together contributors and editors from Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark and as the March edition of Prospect hits the stands, we discuss the so-called war on free speech, from no platforming and safe spaces on campus to the claimed chilling effect on artistic freedom. The one thing today's contributors can agree on is that the battles are real. But how serious is the fight?
0: I don't want the right to run away with the conversation and, and to be the ones that, that believe in liberty. This is doing ourselves a terrible injustice.
3: But do these attacks really mark the erosion of free thinking or merely a belated attempt to wrestle the microphone away from the traditional elite? We may not all agree, but we'll defend everyone's right to say it over the next half hour. With me in Westminster today is the American author of many great novels. Perhaps most famously, we need to talk about Kevin. It's Lionel Shriver. And next to Lionel is our managing editor, Samir Rahim. Welcome to you both. Before the end of the programme, we'll also hear from the journalist and author, Afua Hirsch, whose book, Brit-ish, is about race and identity. But first of all, let's bring in Britain's best-known classicist, Mary Beard, Later on we'll be talking to her about um, her new BBC series and the changing way we see the human body. But first of all I thought I'd ask her to help us kick off our discussion about free speech because like quite a few people who work in universities she's had a personal run-in with the question of who should and shouldn't get to say things in them. I asked her about that experience.
1: I signed a letter which was protesting about one particular example of apparent no-platforming. Now, it's never very clear when no-platforming is no-platforming. And I signed it along with a lot of people, including Peter Tatchell and you know, other, others who were not exactly of the far right. I now can't even remember exactly what happened, except you know, for sitting at home and receiving about 60 abusive tweets an hour, you know, telling me that I didn't understand about safe spaces...
3: Do you feel, though, overall, I mean, you work and live in universities, um, that there is a real problem with free speech, or do you think the whole thing's overdone? I
1: think it's being blown up rather beyond what, at least what I observe in Cambridge. I mean, I think if you read papers, you will get the impression that... People like me are kind of living in fear of saying something that's unacceptable, that we're worried about inviting people with controversial possibly or not views to express on the grounds that uh, there might be a demand to be no platformed, that all our students are asking for trigger warnings, and that safe spaces is the order of the day. Now, I think there's some useful discussion going on about this. And I wouldn't like to say those aren't issues. I think they are. But I am not living in a reign of terror where I feel I can't open my mouth and say something that a lot of people wouldn't agree with.
3: Mary Beard, Speaking to me earlier and saying in some Lionel that uh, it's as well to keep calm and carry on, but in your piece for us, um, you're saying something quite different, aren't you? Oh, I'm. I'm always
0: big on keeping calm, and I find what Mary said quite reassuring. Uh, there's a lot of uh, ideological restriction of free speech going on on college campuses, and as long as it stays on college campuses, I think that's regrettable. It's not a good way to um, enter your adult life thinking all these things that you're not supposed to say or think or allow other people to say and think. But if it's were restricted entirely to the university, um, it would be a containable and perhaps even a small problem. I am noticing that a lot of the sensitivities uh, surrounding identity politics, um, You know, all the red button issues, uh, gender identity, race, ethnicity, are starting to bleed into my profession. And, uh, you know, that's writing books. I think it is a somewhat larger problem than Mary is is saying. And I'm delighted if she's not finding it especially constraining um, for her professionally. And certainly she has plenty of platform these days. So she's not being no platform, not in the big picture. And and I don't I don't feel that I am either. I mean I this uh, the essay that I published with you is not meant to be one long whinge about you know how terribly persecuted I am, but I I, I do notice that I feel a little less free. I feel more self conscious. I'm particularly anxious in a way that I would never have been before about writing characters who have a different race or ethnicity. This
3: is the so-called cultural appropriation argument, isn't it? Yes,
0: of course, to to a large degree, I brought this on myself because since I've made uh, defeating the whole concept of cultural appropriation something of a cause celeb, I invite scrutiny. So of all the people in the world, it's going to be me and my work who are going to be especially examined for how I portray... A different race or ethnicity, I guess that was inevitable, but I, I find it unfortunate.
3: Um, it's pretty obvious, reading your piece, that the, you know the main thing in your head as you've done this is like censorship or kind of imposed self-censorship, whatever you call it, from the from the for want of a better phrase, politically correct left. Um, although you do drop in a thought about uh, kind of more traditional censorship for kind of conservative prudishness, as it were. But, I mean, one thing at the moment that seems to me there's an awful lot of discussion is, is people who claim to have centrists, you know, who claim to have very hurt feelings by the so-called Corbyn hard left, so, um talk about um, anti-Zionism merging into anti-Semitism or um, council leader in London claiming to have been driven out by a misogynist campaign because someone had sung every breath you take to her at the public gallery. Am I right? Is this Are you much more concerned about the, the problem on the left or do you think it's really political spectrum wide problem we're talking about here?
0: Well certainly we are dealing with censorship on the whole spectrum uh, but there has been a change and that is when I was growing up, uh, I was born in 1957, uh, the, the people who were exercising repressive influences on publishing on freedom of expression whatever, uh, they were all conservatives you know, and they, they were obsessed with anti-communism. You couldn't say anything mean about the United States. Of course, I grew up in the U.S. Uh, they uh, were anti-drugs. They were anti-sex. They believed that you had to get married before you had sex. You know, there was a whole list of things that you could and couldn't do according to uh, the conservative ideology. And uh, so that I, I associate repression and censorship with the right. And What has changed is that we're also getting it from the left. And so that's why really that I, in my essay for you, I um, concentrated a little more on the, I would have to say a lot more Mm -hmm. on the left because that's what's happening in a new way. It is important to note that uh, in terms of uh, having books knocked off the shelves of uh, school libraries and it's mostly, you know, the conservative Christian right uh, objecting that there are gay and transgender characters that uh, that uh, the books use uh, profanity and cursing you know that's a very old co- culture war. Mm-hmm. It's still ongoing. it still has to be fought, but this is a new one and i am I am very concerned that we've done some kind of a flip whereby suddenly freedom of speech has been allowed to be co-opted as a cause by the right. And I believe that this is catastrophic. I don't want to see the left, a tradition in which I was raised, uh, abandon liberality.
4: I wonder if there's a distinction between censorship and just very harsh and maybe even unfair criticism. So say you write a story and somebody thinks that it represents a particular group badly or whatever, and um, maybe they write a blog or they tweet at you or they, they sort of, um, in terms in which we would not think of it as being reasoned criticism, they're not quite censoring you, are they? They are just criticising you. And so in a way, are you calling for a better quality of criticism?
3: Well, you're almost saying, Samir, that maybe speech has got too free. That's the problem, mob giving rise to mob rule, that sort of thing.
0: Well, I would still say that I want everyone to feel free to say whatever they want. I'm not going to list a bunch of rules for how we can criticize each other. So sometimes people have very strong feelings, and it's true that I'm afraid uh, the protocol has become considerably less polite, and I, I rue that. Um, because it means we're no longer having a conversation. It's just a shouting match. But that is a different topic. I think you make a, do- a very good point that there, that there is actually a kind of smudged line between censorship and extreme criticism. Now, there doesn't have to be, but when you've got institutions reacting to the extreme criticism, then it, it, what, that the extreme criticism becomes censorship. I think maybe the best example uh, recently is Kirkus Reviews, uh, which is an, an early review vehicle uh, in the U.S. They have a new uh, tradition for reviewing young adult fiction, and if you have any marginalized peoples in your, in your fiction, then they will match the reviewer with the marginalized people so that you get uh, the, the minority view of these, these characters. I'm not too sure about that tradition anyway, but much worse is this book called American Heart. Word got out that it used a so-called white savior narrative. It's I, I have not read the book, so I can't say whether it's any good, but it's a, a, it's a YA novel about a future USA where Muslims are sent to internment camps, and the Protagonist gradually comes to realize that maybe this isn't very nice. (laughs) (laughs) And she actually, the um, the reviewer who was a practicing Muslim uh, liked the book, thought it was very well done, and gave it an enthusiastic review. And the the magazine gave it a star. You know, you don't Kirkus doesn't give that many stars, so that's a good for PR. Well, then all this uh, hoo-ha took off on social media about the uh, white savior narrative, which is, together, uh, another no-no. And the um, magazine responded by removing the review, rewriting it to be much more critical, and uh, removing the star. Now, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah.
4: There's, uh, there's, two, that's interesting. There's, there's two things I'd say there. The idea of a sensitivity reader is, I find, quite strange mm-hmm. um, because it then puts an awful lot of responsibility and pressure on one individual who is supposedly then the representative of a Muslim woman of colour who's yeah. practising. There also might be another Muslim woman of colour who's practising. You might have a completely different view. So uh, we're always going through one person's point of view there, and I think that, that's a bit odd. And the second point, I think, is... Um, there isn't enough free speech for people who are marginalised and that maybe if there were more novels which just happen to be by from Muslim perspectives in America then people wouldn't worry about there being a whole sort of panoply of things and they may be arguing less for restrictions on things which are already out there and more for writers from that background getting um, more platforms or or getting uh, getting help in publish, being published might made the conversation a bit easier to have?
0: Well, I think one of the things that's gone wrong with the conversation is that we have strangely opposed uh, diversity in publishing and freedom of speech. And I don't know how we got this way. I mean, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Um, freedom of speech and diversity in publishing are perfectly uh, compatible. And I, I, I like most reasonable... People in in the wider publishing world, I am very enthusiastic about broadening the backgrounds of the the people who write novels, who write everything. And I think that publishing has made some real progress on that front. I think that's great. That really shouldn't be opposed to freedom of speech. It it is freedom of speech. It is freedom of speech. It's great.
3: And yet, you know, you wouldn't claim to be so I mean, it's in like being unable to write anything you know you are as a, an established white writer writing cover story in prospect white men who you say I aren't didn't know allowed what's the cover story the <laughs> white men who aren't allowed to say any more on these kind of questions and yet they do still dominate most media outlets you know when we as we do from time to time look over even the people we commission we find that they tend to be many more men than women and of course white people as the majority, are going to dominate every debate?
0: Well, I hope not in perpetuity. We don't want to go in the direction of imagining that in order for us to hear from many different experiences that we have to shut all the white people up, that that it's a zero-sum game, and um, some faction has to be shut up, and most of all, of course, at, at the extreme end, the straight white male. And to imagine that in order to open up who is heard from, we have to make sure that they, those people keep their mouths shut. And, you know, that's not fair. And, uh, I would never have argued that, uh, the poor straight white males are being muzzled and never get to say anything, but they, ironically, it is the much more progressive straight white males who are starting to feel that they have to keep a low profile, especially when it comes to Anything to do with uh, women or uh, or or race and ethnicity that 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 they have they feel that they they have to keep their mouths shut. I think that's a pity, and and I think that that gives ammunition to the straight white males that we don't want to give
3: them. I, I wonder how hard you want to push it though, because you said at one point, you know, like at this point about a culture of umbrage and the law gives special protection to minorities. Now, there's some good reasons why people would care particularly about minorities. You know, we worry about anti-Semitism, but not anti-Gentilism because of Auschwitz. We worry about racism towards um, people of colour because of um, slavery and everything that came afterwards. And this isn't some new kind of snowflake thing. Incitement specifically to racial hatred has been in the statute book in this country for more than, 40 years, are you suggesting that we should make all of the law colorblind?
0: Yes, I think that's more just. Now, it does so happen that I'm not big on hate speech laws. And that's such a complicated area that I think we should skip it. Because that's a, like, maybe it's my next cover story. But I deliberately left it out because as soon as I started to include it, I realized it would take over the whole mm. essay. So let's not go there. But if we are going to have such uh, such laws on the books that you can't denigrate whole races, then yeah, I'm afraid I think you should include white people. Why not? If you're going to say you can't increase social division, I mean that's one of the reasons that we we don't want to encourage violence, we don't want to encourage discrimination, and we don't and we want to encourage social cohesion. So it doesn't really help either for people to run around saying really mean things about the entire white race if now I, I, am not com- quite- no, I have to say that i'm a little uncomfortable saying that just because i don't believe in hate speech laws so i actually do think you should be able to say really mean things about white people and i'm not fussed because go ahead
3: i mean you know for example if someone wants to say something horrible about Gentiles, that might not bother you in the same way that someone saying something horrible about Jews might bother a Jewish person. You'd have to be quite insensitive to say that there's not some difference there because of the history, wouldn't you?
0: Yes, I'd say that there are maybe some degrees of greater or lesser discomfort, but I don't think the law should make that distinction.
3: Well, I'm just going to take a pause there to bring in another contributor to this month's magazine who's also writing on the subject of free speech, but from a very different point of view, Afua Hirsch. I spoke to the journalist and author who, very much unlike Lionel, doesn't see language as just words, but rather as part of a structure of power that favours some over others. I began by asking Afua what she made of Lionel's suggestion that we should do away with hate speech laws.
2: I think that it is easy to say that when you're in a comfortable position of being in a society that is generally set up to protect you. If you know what it feels like to be a minority, to feel the insecurity of your status of being visibly identifiable as someone who attracts hostility just for the fact of existing, then I think that, like me, you would naturally and instinctively be extremely sceptical of any attempts to get rid of really that baseline of protection. Now, I'm somebody who considers myself unequivocally in favour of free speech. I believe in free speech. I believe in a free marketplace of ideas. But I think we need to recognise the way in which that marketplace is working. It's not working in a vacuum. It's working in a context that's very heavily loaded in favour of some groups and not against others. And it's all of our responsibility to try and improve that. And by just saying that we should get rid of the laws that protect people, um, it's taking a very cavalier approach to, on some level, our basic safety.
3: Let's just drill a bit more into that idea you put forward. It'll be very controversial, but it's very, very interesting that um, rather like a a free market that's run on laissez-faire terms with no regulation free speech um uh with no thought no guidance no regulation can end up as a cartel where the uh, you know the ordinary suppliers if you like of opinion clean up is that a fair characterization of your position and um who do you mean by the ordinary suppliers of opinions who is it who clears up
2: well if you look at the press for example it's it's Well documented that our newspapers, our broadcasters, our magazines are not representative of society in terms of the people who work in them, the gatekeepers, the people who make editorial decisions. So while If you take um, the print press, you know, there are a a slowly but steadily increasing number of people entering the print media um, now. It wasn't the case 10, 15 years ago. There are entry level. So the higher up, the more senior you go, the people who really make decisions about what has editorial validity tend to be white men. Um, In 2018, that is as much the case as it was in 2008 or in 1998. And there are statistics that bear that out. Now, bearing in mind that we all bring our own perspectives and our own inherent bias. The people who make decisions about what is valid and what belongs and what is offensive and what is within the realms of um, valid debate are not neutral actors. They are people who um, have enjoyed a level of privilege in this society, who, who are unlikely to personally have had the experience of feeling persecuted or insecure or threatened or othered. That whole spectrum of experiences that people who are visible other experience. And they are the ones deciding what gets a platform. And the result of that, and I think we're seeing this very clearly, is that um, free speech belongs more to some people than it does to others. And when there is a pattern in the kinds of opinion that get that platform that doesn't represent equally this marketplace of ideas, then the results can be incredibly skewed. And that's how I think we need to look at this. It's not that I'm trying to regulate away the free speech of, for example, white men. It's recognizing that we have had a massive market intervention in favor of the free speech of white men for centuries in this country. Now. How how do you go about um, levelling the playing field, redressing balance, getting that marketplace to work? I don't think anyone could argue in all good conscience that the way to level that playing field is to pretend that it's already it's already fair.
3: Some people listening might be saying, well, hold on, what do you mean by all this intervention on behalf of white men? How it, How is it, you think, as you see it, that they've monopolised? Is it just because of a culture where everyone steps out of the way and lets them walk forward? Or is it because of something that some of them have, have actually done to keep this monopoly?
2: I think that largely this operates on a, a cultural and often subconscious level where, you know, as we know in recruitment, for example, people tend to appoint people who they can relate to, who look like them, who have similar interests to them. You know, when we talk about merit, um, we often mean people whose, whose achievements and merit we can relate to. And that that applies to everybody. We all have these biases. It's just that certain groups have had more control and have been in a position to appoint other people like them. And that's been the case with people who control our platforms for speech. And so it's not I'm not really interested in conspiracy theories or, you know, deliberate exclusions. I'm interested in the way that our society has often subconsciously, often unintentionally even, regarded the views of some people as more uh, meritorious than others. And I mean, it's not controversial to say that, you know. It's fact you can look at the um, senior level of any industry not just media if you look at finance or you look at the law or you look at the arts the same group has been dominated that in the society and that's not just because of race that's because we have had a system that um, favours men over women that favours older people over younger people you know there are many ways that and, and that favours people from certain class backgrounds especially so there are many ways that this operates and but I think that it's The essential first step is recognising that it is a system that operates, that we all live within. And you can't remedy that by pretending it doesn't exist. And that applies as much to free speech as it does to all other areas of opportunity in our society.
3: Now, you also say that I think um, sometimes in the name of free speech or under its auspices, what we in fact see is a new form of chauvinism that these days comes wrapped in a rather politically correct language. Could you just expand on what you mean by that a bit?
2: So I think that there's a number of narratives at the moment that have taken hold that are quite damaging. And some of this is just things that haven't changed, that existed in the past, but that I think we have an expectation would have changed now. So for example, I've noticed when I write things that people find difficult to engage with, for example, I wrote a column about Nelson and about reappraising our relationship with iconic figures in British history, I thought the reaction to that was so fascinating. And there were a number of very high profile white male columnists in mainstream newspapers and magazines who wrote what was supposedly a critique of my argument, but which actually undermined me personally by pointing to things like the fact I have Jewish heritage and the fact that I'm a woman and the fact that my mother's family came from Ghana. And it was this kind of dog whistle allusion to my background as if it somehow was relevant to my legitimacy in having an argument and you know I see this over and over again instead of engaging with the points you know these are rational points that I'm raising this is rational argument based on fact instead of engaging with that we kind of try to undermine the subject and to me that is feeding into these old ideas about who has a valid view and who doesn't who is legitimate and who is illegitimate and I think that these views are very much alive only they're more coded now whereas once someone would have said well you don't know anything because you're black and you're a woman now they'll say well, she's this age and she has Jewish and Ghanaian heritage and should we really take her that seriously anyway? And that is happening today.
3: I'm just wondering if there might be some overlap in a rather upside down way here between you and Lionel in that you both seem to be worried from different perspectives about individuals' ideas being interpreted in an overly reductive way you're worried if you speak about something like this, people might say, well, she's you know, got some Ghanaian heritage, of course, so she's going to have a funny way of understanding Nelson. Whereas Lionel says that she thinks there are, she says she speaks to lots of white professors these days who say they're not allowed to say anything about free speech anymore because at the bottom of what Lionel calls the the the, the victimhood totem or something like that, do you think there might be a way of reconciling those two or do you think they're, they're basically fundamentally opposed? No
2: I think we want the same things you know and Lionel is a writer who I admire and um, I think a lot of her objectives I share I want people to be able to express themselves creatively freely and I want debate I don't want people to be self-censoring in a way that they can't engage with especially in my field the kind of discussions I would like us to have in my Particular case about race and identity. And a lot of people are um, fearful to even enter the discussion because they're not sure what language to use and they're worried about being called racist. And that is uh, regressive, you know, that holds us back from having the kind of conversations that could take us forward. So I think we do want the same things. I think the difference is in recognizing how you achieve that and also in the claim of people who say they feel censored to really unpick that and understand what 's happening because before we dismiss some of the new cultural norms we have about what to say, anyone who's experienced being racially abused, for example, will understand that the progress we 've made is good. You know there was a time within my lifetime when racial slurs were used far more widely. I mean we even heard in Parliament in the last year or two people using the n word i don 't think it's bad that people are aware that there is language it 's not acceptable to use, that that language has consequences. For me, there's nothing intrinsically bad in people becoming more educated and more selective in the words they use. Where people start feeling they can't engage in a debate, then something's gone wrong. But I wouldn't place the locus of blame on minorities who seek the right not to be slandered with racially offensive language. I would place the responsibility for that on society for shying away from the next step in the conversation. And I think it's too easy for people to to make themselves victims and to say, well, everything's too politically correct now and I can't speak. It's not that difficult to find a way of engaging in the debate. You just have to do the work. And that is how we grow.
3: Afua Hirsch talking to me earlier. Now, Lionel and Samir are still with me. And Lionel, what do you make of this idea of Afua as a free speech being like the free market, that if you keep your hands off, then the same old cartels will always end up cleaning up?
0: Well, what do you mean John Humphreys is always going to be on the radio? Or
3: <laughs> That's sort of um, a thing, yeah, John Humphreys at Dimblebees, you know, the usual cast list of authority figures who get to frame the discussion.
0: Well, they're good at their jobs, they have an audience. You can't legislate that. You shouldn't be trying to legislate that.
3: But could you have, for example, not the law, certainly not the criminal law, but diversity policies, that sort of thing?
0: I don't believe in affirmative action. I think uh, the people who are really good on the radio should win out, and I don't care, you know, what their sex is or what their race is or
3: anything. Are you pleased that we've got now roughly a third of Parliament's women? Now it was ten percent for decades until you know there was some affirmative action, which Labour did, and then the Tories copied because it, it seemed to work all right for Labour. Would you be content if we were still at ten percent? But I hadn't had to do the messy thing of introducing some affirmative. Oh, action. you mean
0: like the uh, all-women shortlist, yeah. kind of thing.
3: Without the nudge, it wouldn't have happened.
0: Possibly, I like to fancy that maybe a, a little more slowly, it still would have happened, mm-hmm. and then it would have felt different.
4: Personally, I find it depressing the idea that people need to be forced to be fair in their in their assessments of people when they're when they're getting jobs or, or applying for things and maybe in some circumstances they need to be but i think particularly as we're moving to an age which there are many many more mixed race people some members of my own family i do wonder whether the classification people of color which seems to have arrived is very useful i'm already tired of it <laughs> i mean when we have a you know you, you know somebody who is mixed race or applies for a job do they just do they get that particular advantage because of um Um, you know depending on you know does it not matter what class they're for example there was a publishing diversity thing a few years ago um, uh, uh, and a scheme for an internship and um, the person who got the job uh, was black British but they'd also been to Eton and I just think that's completely pointless
3: Yes, we, we know the way that these things can go. Um, one thing you haven't seen yet, Lionel, is we've got some opinion polling, which we did to go with all of this package, which has got some pretty striking results. It shows, for example, that when we ask the identical question about whether people are being too sensitive or um, whether people need to kind of mind their language not to offend sort of thing, on that measure, to use the dread phrase, Britain is less politically correct than Donald Trump's America which was certainly something that surprised me but the other thing when we drilled down to lots of these questions you know like do you feel like you're gagged do you want a plain speaking leader or a leader who takes the trouble not to offend people all these kind of things we got a very very deep divide between the EU leavers and the EU remainers and I think you can guess which way round it would go but you know eu remainers want a polite leader they want a polite leader yeah they want uh they want people to mind their language and they think people can talk about the issues that matter to them and by a really striking distance the eu leader leavers take the opposite view so i just wondered if you could reflect a bit on whether that feels right to you whether there is now a very tribal thing going on around these issues
0: well, they, there is. And, um, of course, uh, as you point out, it's a, the same divide is happening in the U.S. I tend to resist parallels between Brexit and Trump. But in this regard, I think it's pretty sound. And, uh, you know, that whole plain speaking thing with Trump, I'd more say just... Lying. Crap speaking. <laughs> yeah, and lying. I mean, um, I think there is a place for plain speaking and uh, being direct and forthright. Um and and uh, Trump is a very poor example of that. but it's interesting that there's there are these different these competing appetites for either someone who is down to earth and and calls a spade a spade and is willing to directly address sensitive subjects and this this desire for a decorum and a kind of rigid decency. You know I'm not quite sure what to make of that, but it definitely is it it is becoming a left-right divide in a way that I don't like, because I actually do like plain speaking, but I'm I'm not right wing. We don't want to let the right colonize the ability to be direct and confront issues head on, like immigration, and be clear about what they mean. Why give that to the right?
3: And let's just bring it back now to fiction and I thought one of the most striking lines in your piece was really this idea of this cultural appropriation. In other words, this business of being able to borrow from characters are nothing like you. If that goes to its extremes, you say that will be the end of fiction, which is a very um, dramatic phrase. And yet this divide that you're talking about, like the people who are concerned with decorum and so on, they're the main group in amongst writing circles amongst publishing houses what do you think all your colleagues in that world would think they, they can't agree with you that they're if they're working in com- fiction and committed to fiction that they're setting setting it on the road to uh, oblivion
0: well you know i cited the fact that uh, the guardian review did a two-page spread on all these different authors who um, gave their views on cultural appropriation and whether it, it should be okay and what I guess what took me aback was how equivocal they were, even if they were defending the right to craft characters other than themselves. It was very tentative, and I found that shocking. And again, I, I think a lot of the, the, the direction this has gone has to do with this flipping of whose issue free speech is, and it, suddenly my colleagues are uncomfortable defending free speech, and are constantly trying to um, hem it in and qualify it and say all the things you can and cannot do. And you can only do these things if you're really good at it, which they, they always claim they are, but nobody else is. And I find this terribly unfortunate. And I, I, I just I don't want the right to run away with the conversation and, and to be the ones that, that believe in liberty. This is doing ourselves a terrible injustice. And writers, in particular, have a huge investment in freedom of speech. Now, that is includes freedom to make an ass of yourself or to put things out there that get severely criticised. But it is the founding right of what we do for a living.
3: To end this week, we return to Mary Beard, who has written for us about her new BBC TV series, Civilizations, which is, in a way there to mark the anniversary of Kenneth Clark's seminal television essay on western culture back in the 1960s when i spoke to her earlier i began asking her what's similar and what's different about this new series
1: we never set out to redo clark this is not as it were a clark second edition we wanted to take kind of a challenge of what he was trying to do and say how can we think along those lines with those themes with those questions you know in the 21st century and so you know although it might seem a bit of a cliche when clark's title was civilization in the singular and that meant just europe we are very careful to call it civilizations with an s in the plural because what we're really wanting to do is think outside his constraints, which were effectively uh, Western Europe and a couple of trips to America.
3: So you're getting outside, as it were, the, 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 the familiar canon. And in what you've written for us, you talk about some kind of images of heads that are really like nothing I'd seen before.
1: <laughs> yeah, I start my first episode that I do, I just do two episodes, with some extraordinary prehistoric heads made by the so-called Olmec civilization. No, we really don't know much about them. In central Mexico, the Olmec, they're the earliest Mesoamerican civilization we know. They've left no writing. And what's absolutely in your face about these faces is that there they are. There's more than 15 of them altogether. They're colossal, in some ways very aggressively Staring basalt heads, and partly because we know so little about them, apart from what they are, they really help you to look at all the questions. The images of the human body always ought to raise, but we often kind of pass them by. Like, what on earth were these things? Thor? You know, why were they so big? You know, who paid for them? You know, were they supposed to be a portrait, or were you know, were they a god? Were they human beings at all? And so we in something which I think is very striking and very unfamiliar to us and that partly enables us to get straight to the questions that we often don't ask about our own familiar portraits and images of the human body.
3: I know that you're always as interested in the way things that works of art and so on are received as the way that they're made and so when you Um, look at these strange heads and wonder what these distant people made of them what does it make you think is happening in your head or my head when we walk through I don't know the National Portrait Gallery or whatever it is
1: Well, I think that's the big question and I I think that so often we've been taught to think about art as if in order to understand it you had to understand the artist who made it and possibly the patron who paid for it and What I've been trying to do, and I think it's, you know, you very rarely have the evidence for it, but you do sometimes. I've been trying to say, look, let's look and see what the people who look at it say about it, how they react to it, how they're challenged by it, what they like. Now, I think that a big part of the issue here is simply making that twist the answers to those questions are complicated, and they're many, and they're varied. But what's really important is that we should say, no, let's not stop with the creative process. And actually, the creative process is often deemed to be a very male process. Let's think about what impact it made on those who look. Now, I think that in some ways when you walk through the national portrait gallery we know that people have all kinds of different reactions to it you know you think gosh you know well you know, one perfectly valid reaction now is to think you know yet more old men but i think that what's amazing is it, is actually when you start when you just start to sensitize yourself and to say no let's think if we've got the material to you know to recapture not just our reactions But the reactions of the people in the past, well, the answer is yes, we do have sometimes. And um, one of my favorite bits of the program is when we go and explore the reactions of a woman, a lady-in-waiting in the party of the Emperor Hadrian in around 120 AD, who visited one of the greatest tourist attractions of the world then, or the Western world, which was two vast Egyptian statues, colossal statues of a pharaoh, one of which was believed to sing <laughs> and this lady, Julia Balbilla, actually had her reactions to what she saw her excitement and her disappointment when at first the statue didn't sing for them inscribed on the foot of the statue and so it takes you right right into as close as you can get at least into the to the eyes and the reactions and the gaze of a woman 2000 years ago looking at something that we can still look at
3: and bringing it back to the sort of the Clark tradition um if you like the old canon i think you say that this uh, starts really at a pretty particular point in the history of ancient greek where greece where bodies get very lithe and strong looking and animated um and you think that's still the tradition we're in so i just wanted to ask you does that d- d- when you look at all kinds of things about visual culture today do you think you know um like body image and lots of these problems we have, go back to what canon we happen to be stuck in? Well,
1: yes and no is the answer to that. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, another of the big points that we want to make in the programme is that the art of classical antiquity, and, you know, OK, I'm a classicist and I would say that, but I think it's true. The art of classical antiquity is still with us and still affects the way we see things now. And in particular, the enormous revolution that there was In Greece, around 500 BC, in a new form of live and supple and athletic representations of the human body, uh, is still with us. It has been constantly reinvented, it's sometimes been challenged, but that particular version of the body beautiful still underlies how we look at works of art and how we think of some things as realistic and some things as not. And I think there is it's a rather more remote connection with our own obsession on body image because I don't actually think that um, you know, the Greeks were not as preoccupied with you know size naught as we are. Um, but I think what does what, what we can trace back at least to ancient Greece? is the idea that there is a right way to look and there is a wrong way to look. And although we think of ancient Greece quite rightly in some respects as a, as a wonderful, in, at least in parts, um, in a free, democratic place, it had a rigid view uh, about excluding those people whose body forms didn't fit. You know, woe betide, the fat, or the elderly, or the flabby. Um, and... In a way, it's a very nice example. It's a nice crystallisation of precisely how important you know, making your body look right has been throughout Western culture.
3: Lionel, we've just um, flashed one of um, Mary's almost heads, an image of that in front of you. Are you sympathetic to her point that something that strange could shake up the way we look at bodies and the way we look at art?
0: Well, I think art is a good source of... Uh, shaking up how you look at bodies, I think art uh, is capable of making um, a much wider uh, range of body types beautiful. Whereas, as Mary points out, you know our, our standards are really quite strict and narrow. When you open your eyes artistically to the human body, then there are many ways of being beautiful, including being ample, mm. that there is a magnificence to a larger body. And art can illustrate that, and I've seen it in in any number of of museums in different periods, different styles of different civilizations. but I think it's valuable
3: and Samir, what do you think just as a cultural phenomenon of this business of running civilizations with an s rather than civilization? I was like, aren't they butting off more than they can chew? You can't do every civilization has ever been in nine programmes or whatever it is?
4: That's slightly my fear. I mean, uh, the original civilization, we have to remember, was subtitled A Personal View. The idea, it was idiosyncratic. It was Kenneth Clark using the sort of wealth of his experience and expertise, mainly in Italian art. It even missed out quite a lot of things within European tradition as well. My slight worry is that you have three presenters now, Mary Beard, Simon Sharma, David O'Shoga, Civilizations uh, what's the through argument going to be is it going to be a program that you can't really argue with because it tries to cover all the cover all the bases although i do agree that you know opening up interesting comparisons between different kinds of art is a good i mean for example in um, in the middle ages quite a few uh, venetian artists went to the ottoman empire and they uh, painted the sultans there and then were influential on the art uh, and the Persian miniature culture that developed there and in, um, in the East. So, in a way, civilizations almost seems too divided. If you see, in one way, the way they overlap and flow into each other could be quite an interesting proposition.
3: The Thing that comes into my mind listening to Samir there is: Do you remember Prince Charles saying he wasn't going to be defender of the faith; he was going to be defenders of faiths? And you kind of think, mm, this does sound like it could get a bit fuzzy.
0: Well, I think Samir is right that the lines between civilizations. Are fuzzy, and in a fun way, they overlap. They take each other over. They have wars with each other. They steal each other's stuff. They steal each other's traditions. You know that's one of the things that makes the whole concept of cultural appropriation unviable, because we've been appropriating up a storm, um, from the year dot.
3: <laughs> That's it for the Prospect podcast this week. So huge thanks to Afua, to Lionel, to Samir and to Mary. Um, the March edition of Prospect magazine, which is in the shops from Thursday, features all these fine writers and more, including Paul Johnson of the IFS on why the numbers culture doesn't add up. And Philip Ball on why Steven Pinker is wrong to attribute everything clever to the Enlightenment. You can look forward to those two, thrashing that out in a future issue of this podcast. Uh, You can pick up the magazines in the shops, but even better, if you've enjoyed the discussion, visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. You know you want to. We'll be back next week with our regular show, so find out what the Prospect Office makes of the latest news and ideas by subscribing for free to the Prospect Podcast on your podcast app of choice. I'm Tom Clark, the producer was Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye, and thanks very much for listening.